1: So good morning again, Grace Church. So as you can see, Pastor Roger is not here today. Um, He is okay. You don't have to worry. He's doing really well and in good health. He's just um, spending some extra time, some well-deserved time with his family today, Uh, which gives me the great pleasure of introducing our guest preacher today, Jesse Fenn. I know many of you know Jesse, but for those of you who don't, uh, Jesse is currently the pastor at Hillsdale Church in San Jose. I'm sorry, Hillsside Church in San Jose. I knew I was going to do that. Um, where he serves as the outreach pastor and also oversees the junior high ministry. Um, Like Pastor Roger, Jesse received his Master's of Divinity from the Master's Seminary down in Southern California. Um, Jesse is also near and dear to Grace Church of the Bay Area, as many of you know. Uh, Before going off to seminary, Jesse was a member of Grace Church and uh, served faithfully in many ways, including as part of the worship team. And he was also an intern uh, for Pastor Roger in 2015 and 2016, um, before he went off to seminary. Um, and last but not least, Jesse uh, was recently engaged to be married to our very own Melissa Prey. Um, <laughs> congratulations again. So he has uh, taken her away from us, but we won't hold that against him. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, we're very blessed to have Jesse uh, preach the word to us today. He's definitely a faithful minister of the gospel, and uh, Pastor Ron- Roger specifically wanted to let, wanted me to let everybody know that he has a ton of respect for Jesse as a man and as a pastor, and specifically wanted Jesse to fill in today in his pulpit. So without further ado, Jesse, um, we'd love you to come up and exposit the word. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Kyle, and uh, thanks to all of you for for having me today, and uh, it is just always a a privilege and a blessing to uh, be able to come by to Grace Church of the Bay Area. As Kyle was saying, it is a a church that's very near and dear to my heart, so I always love the chance to visit, and uh, when Melissa and I were talking to Roger a couple weeks ago after getting engaged, Roger wanted me to know that I owe him big time and all of Grace Bay Area, so... Hopefully uh, filling in for him can be just one of the, the little ways that I could repay you guys for all of the blessings, uh, not least of which would be Melissa, so, so thank you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles today, I invite you to open up to John chapter 17, and um, as Kyle mentioned, I'm the outreach pastor at Hillside Church, so a lot of what I do there has to do with outreach and evangelism and thinking about ways that the church can be effective in reaching the world with the message of the gospel. And Today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at a topic that at first glance uh, probably sounds like it has nothing to do with outreach. Um, It might actually sound like the opposite of outreach, but I think what we'll see is that it actually has everything to do with outreach and evangelism, and that topic is unity in the church. So John chapter 17, and before we read this text, I want to set it up a little bit Uh, Because this chapter is like no other chapter in the Bible. Uh, This is recorded from the last day of Christ's life before he was arrested. uh, Before he stood trial and went to the cross. This is his last day, his final hours. And what he does in those final hours is he prays. Uh, He pours out his heart to his Father. And he prays for two things specifically. He prays for his glory... In verses 1 to 5, he prays to his father that the glory that he laid down in order to come into the world and save sinners, he prays that that glory will be restored to him, having completed the mission that he came to fulfill. And then in verses 6, all the way to the end, he prays for his people. And he prays for their their unity. He prays for their security. Uh, He prays for their mission. And then finally, in this crescendo, he prays in verse 24 that they would be regathered with him, to behold his glory. John chapter 17, the final hours of Christ's life. So we'll read uh, this text. Today we're going to be focusing on verses 20 to 23, but just to give you the sort of the big picture of this prayer so that you can follow the, the train and the, the flow of thought, I want to read through uh, the whole chapter up to verse 24. So let's read this chunk of text. Uh, John chapter 17, starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 24, it says this, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And verses 20 to 23, the the focus of our time today. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And we'll stop there. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a phase in my life when uh, one of the hobbies that I kind of got into was collecting baseball cards. I was pretty into it. I grew up in what I consider the greatest era of sports history, the steroid era. I know it wasn't, uh, it wasn't great for the kind of the ethics and morality of the game, but for a young kid growing up in the Bay Area watching Barry Bonds and people like that hitting home runs all the time, it was the greatest thing ever. So I loved baseball. I loved baseball cards. And I used to go and visit this uh, baseball card shop in my town. And I remember seeing all the the sports memorabilia. Uh, They had, you know, you could get baseball cards uh, with, they called them bat cards. You could get a card with a little sliver of a game-used bat. And it'd go for a couple hundred bucks or something like that. Uh, You could get jersey cards. So it would have a little piece of a game-used jersey built into the card. And uh, I have a very distinct memory of going there and seeing a pair of game-used autographed shoes from Shaquille O'Neal. They are like this big. It's a slight exaggeration, but they are huge shoes, size 23 Reeboks. And they go for a lot of money. Uh, but if you're going to buy something like that, how do you know that what you're about to get is the real deal? Uh, that goes for sports memorabilia. That goes for pretty much anything of that category. It goes for art. If you're going to invest money and a very expensive piece of memorabilia, how do you know that this is the real thing? How do you know this is the real deal? Uh, One way you can know that is through something called an SOA. SOA, Seal of Authenticity. And what that is, is it's a a stamp or a mark, something that you, you stamp and you seal this piece of memorabilia with, and it says that this is the real thing. What you have just purchased is authentic. It is the real deal. And I tell you that because what we're going to see in John 17 is that the gospel, the message of the church, the message that the Father has sent the Son into the world to save sinners, that message comes with a seal of authenticity, and that seal is unity in the church. So we're going to look at this, this prayer, a prayer from the very lips of Christ for the church, for her unity, and what we're going to see in this text is, is this, that when you became a Christian, you were called into a supernatural and eternal unity with your fellow Christians, the purpose of which is to reach the world. Let me say that again. When you became a Christian, you were called into a supernatural and eternal unity with your fellow Christians, the purpose of which is to reach the world. So let's look at this text. Uh, We're going to look at it in in really five parts today. So the first thing I want us to see is the scope of Christian unity. The scope of Christian unity. What does this unity encompass? Uh, Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Uh, If you're paying really careful attention, when I read through that chapter, you'll notice there are three things that Christ specifically does not pray for as he prays to his Father. Uh, Verse 9, he says, He's not praying for the world, but for those whom the Father has given him out of the world. So he very clearly establishes who he's praying for by very clearly establishing who he's not praying for. It's emphatic. Verse 15 He's praying for the church and and for their mission. And he says to his father, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. So he he recognizes that the church has been left here for a purpose. And he's not praying that the father would take them away, kind of extract them from uh, the very arena in which they're called to do work. But he's praying that the father would protect them as they carry out that work. And now in verse 20... Again, emphatically, he establishes who he's praying for by stating who he is not praying for. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for all who will believe in me through their word. What does that mean? That means that 2,000 years ago, Christ prayed for you. You know, it's very easy when we read the Bible to go wrong by kind of reading ourselves into the text, right? If we read through David and Goliath and kind of insert ourselves there, you know, we are David and whatever is Goliath. It's pretty easy to go wrong as we interpret the scripture by inserting ourselves into the text. But this is one instance when all of us are very much in the text of scripture in that Christ prays not just for his disciples, not just for the people around him, but for everyone who will ever believe through the word of the disciples. So let me unpack that a little bit. Romans 10, verse 17 says this, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. What that means is that if you became a Christian, because of anything that has to do with the New Testament, then you are included in this prayer of Christ. Christ prays for everyone who will believe in him through the word of the disciples, which would be through the word of the New Testament, the words of Christ recorded by the disciples, if you're believing in Christ, had anything to do with the New Testament, had anything to do with the message that the the disciples and the apostles had recorded, then Christ prayed for you in the upper room 2,000 years ago. So when Christ prays for the unity of his people, He's praying for the unity of his disciples. He's praying for the unity in the church of the first century. He is praying for the unity of Grace Church of the Bay Area, the unity of Hillside Church, the unity of every church in every place, in every time, in every language. Christ prays for the unity of all who will believe. The English-speaking church, the Spanish-speaking church, the Mandarin-speaking church, the Korean-speaking church, the church of the first century, in the second century, in the third century, Christ prays for all who will believe through the word of the disciples, for all who will believe. Christ is praying for all Christians everywhere at all times. So when you became a Christian, you were called into a family. You were called into a family of all those who would believe. And Christ prayed for you. Christ prayed for your unity. The scope of Christian unity is all who would believe. And there are worlds of implications here. What that means is that if you're a Christian, you should have more in common with a believer from the third century than with your next door neighbor if they do not know Christ because you were called into a family. You have been called into an eternal family that stretches back to Christ and extends forward for all of eternity. Christ prayed for your unity. Uh, I can remember reading a book, one of the most famous books in the history of Christianity, called The Confessions, The Confessions of St. Augustine. And I remember asking, uh, I think it was one of my roommates or someone who was near me, hey, do you you know when this book was written? It was written in the 5th century, early in the 5th century. And people still read it to this day because we have something in common with Augustine. We have something in common with believers from the 5th century because we are united to them because Christ prayed for our unity 2,000 years ago. The scope of Christian unity is all who would believe. Let's look secondly at the nature of Christian unity. What is this unity? What does it look like? What are we to make of this unity? Let's look at verses 21, and then we'll look at verse 23. Verse 21 says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So what does this unity look like? Uh, According to these verses, this unity looks something like the Trinity. It looks something like the relationship that the Father has with the Son, which is to say it looks something like the most perfect unity in existence. The, The model, the illustration for our unity that Christ is praying for is the relationship between the Father and the Son. So what do we make of that? Uh, I'm going to give us several characteristics of unity, the nature of our unity. First of all, Christian unity is internal, and we know that because the unity of the Trinity is internal. So when we're talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the unity that exists there, uh, we're not talking about the Father and the Son getting along with each other, right? We're, We're not talking about the Father and the Son having uh, similar interests. Certainly, the Father and the Son are of one will. But that's not what we're talking about. What we mean is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have this internal, mysterious oneness. They are three, and yet they are one. They are indivisible. They can't be divided. And in the same way, Christian unity is an internal unity. It's a unity that we can't see, but a unity that very much... Uh, exists and let me let me give you an example so I've had uh, the the privilege on two separate occasions uh, being able to go on a short-term ministry trip to a different country and that's a great experience for for a Christian so I've been to two different countries uh, doing gospel ministry the first one was Switzerland and the second country is a country that Roger knows very well and that is Albania Uh, those are very different places Switzerland is amazing When I got back from Switzerland, people asked me, what's Switzerland like? And I'd say, well, it pretty much looks like the pictures, which is to say it's awesome. Switzerland is beautiful. It is an amazing place. Uh, It's also the richest country in the world. Albania is very different. Uh, Albania is also in Europe. It's the poorest country in Europe. And when I got back from Albania, or when I was going to Albania, people would ask me, Albania, what's that? You mean Alabama? No, I don't mean Alabama. No one's ever heard of it. Very different country. Very different place. Very different history. Switzerland was one of the core countries in the Reformation. In Albania, all religion was illegal for about 35 years in the 20th century. Very different places. Very different cultures. Very different histories. And yet, when I went there, what I experienced was a kind of unity, a kind of oneness with these Christians that you can't necessarily see you can't necessarily explain it but it's there it's real because Christian unity is internal Christ prayed for our unity, it's an internal unity that we share with all believers everywhere for all time, so Christian unity is internal, Uh, secondly Christian unity is supernatural in other words, this is not something that we can uh, simply create This kind of unity that Christ is praying for is not something that we can conjure up on our own. It's not something that we can create. It's not something that we can maintain. Uh, It's not that if we just have enough patience and enough wisdom with each other, we can create this kind of unity. No, this is a, a unity that is unlike anything in this world. Because the unity of the Father and the Son is unlike anything in this world. This is a unity that Christ himself creates in his church. We have unity in a lot of different areas in the world, right? I played sports for most of my life. There's a lot of unity in sports. Uh, even a few months ago, I had breakfast with some teammates from college, guys that I haven't seen in years. And there still exists a kind of unity that we share from being on the same team for several years. But that's not the kind of unity that Christ is praying for in his church. This is a supernatural unity. This is a unity that only God can create in his people. This is a supernatural unity. Uh, Third, Christian unity stems from our unity with God. Look again at verse 21. He says, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. If you read through your New Testament, uh, you will see all throughout the New Testament these two words, in Christ, in Him. And that's something that has intrigued Christians for centuries. You can read volumes and volumes of theology on those two words, in Christ, in Him, union with Christ. And the reason that's so fascinating and so amazing to Christians is because that is totally unique to Christianity. Christianity is the only religion, the only philosophy in the world that speaks of the relationship between the the people, the creatures, and the deity in such close and intimate terms that we are said to be not with Christ, not near Christ, but we are said to be in Christ. We are united. In Christ and what John seventeen would teach us is that, insofar as we are united with Christ, we are united to all of christ's people. We are united to all those whom the Son has prayed for. We are united to all of christ's people all over the world for all times. Our unity with each other stems from our unity with God. If you are united to God, you are united to all of his people. That means the minute that you became a Christian, you joined a family of millions of people spanning centuries and into eternity. Fourth, Christian unity is eternal. Christian unity is eternal. And we can imply this from everything that we're seeing in the text. Again, the the illustration for our unity is the trinity, the relationship between the Father and the Son. That is an eternal relationship. Our unity is supernatural, right? Only God can create it, and only God could sever it. And God never has, and he never will, sever the relationship between he and his people, which means Christian unity is an eternal kind of unity. This is a unity that goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, if If you are fortunate enough to come from a a really good really loving family then you know a little something of what this kind of unity is except that 20 billion years from now you will be no less united to the spiritual family that christ is praying for right now if you come from a great family that's an awesome blessing But the family that Christ is praying for is an eternal family. This is a family that will go on for all of eternity. Christian unity is eternal. And fifth and finally, uh, Christian unity is real. Christian unity is real. And what do I mean by that? There's something very important that we need to understand in this text. As we read John 17, as we read Christ's prayer for his church, for their unity, we need to understand this. The Father has answered the Son's prayer. The Father has answered the Son's prayer. Uh, We know this because the Father and the Son are perfectly one, right? We see that in the very text. John chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So if we pray for anything in accordance with the will of the father in the name of Christ that prayer will be answered if we pray in accordance with God's will God will answer that prayer and Christ always only cannot do anything but pray in accordance with the will of his father so the father has answered the son's prayer that means Christian unity is real this has happened. This unity exists. And if you want to see what it looks like, turn to Ephesians, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Who's the both? The both is Jews and Gentiles, two groups that could be hostile to each other. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility Christian unity is real. This exists. When Christ died on the cross, when Christ purchased sinners to himself, he purchased to himself a family, a family of Christians who are perfectly united for all eternity, killing the hostility, it says, breaking down the dividing wall. Christian unity is real. So what are we supposed to do with that, right? If this unity is real, if Christ has purchased this unity, if this is not something that we can create and it's not something that we can maintain, what is there for us to do, right? Do we get to uh, just relax and, and praise God for this unity and just go about our lives? Uh, that's, actually, that's actually the opposite of what we should do. See, if Christian unity is real, then we should be striving to express what Christ has already accomplished. We we should be striving, working to manifest on the outside what Christ has accomplished on the inside. So we shouldn't merely be relieved that this unity exists. We should be relieved, but we should also be encouraged. And we should be challenged to demonstrate this kind of unity. And we should do that because Christian unity is is not only internal and supernatural and eternal and real, but Christian unity has a purpose. Christian unity has a purpose. And we find that in verses 21 and 23. So we've seen the scope of Christian unity the nature of Christian unity, and let's look third at the purpose of Christian unity. Verse 21 says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Christian unity has a purpose, and the purpose is that the world may know. That the world may know. Two things specifically. First, that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son, and we celebrate that reality every year. Every December 25th, we celebrate As a a church and as a a world, we celebrate this reality that the Father has sent his Son into the world. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We celebrate every year that the Father sent the Son into the world. And as we, as a church, express our unity, as we love each other, serve each other, we manifest that reality. We give the world reason to believe that very message that the Father sent the Son into the world. And secondly, that the Father has loved them, which is to say believers, the church, that the Father has loved the church with the same love with which he has loved the Son. And that is staggering. What kind of love did the Father love the Son with? Eternal love. Infinite love. Unfathomable, unbreakable love. And when we, as a church, express our love for each other, are united with each other, serve each other, again, we give the world reason to believe That very message. We give the world reason to believe that the Father has loved the church with the same love with which he has loved his son. And that makes sense if you think about it, right? If I inherited $10 million and for whatever reason I wanted to convince you that I had this inheritance, you know what I could do? I could be very generous with my money. That would probably convince you, right? If we have been loved with an eternal, infinite, unfathomable love, the greatest way for us to prove this is to love each other. And as we love each other, the purpose of our unity is fulfilled, and we give the world reason to believe, reason to know our message. We stamp the gospel with a seal of authenticity. I want to read a quote for you from one of the commentators. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it gets at the purpose of Christian unity and the importance of expressing this unity for the sake of our mission. This is from a commentator named Bruce Milne, and he says this, The biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel, as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. These are the enemies of effective evangelism, which render the gospel fruitless and send countless thousands into eternity without a savior, The glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to our trust, is being openly contradicted and veiled by the sinful relationships within the community which is commissioned to communicate it. So Christian unity is important. The stakes are high. So how can we live out this unity? How can we manifest on the outside what Christ has accomplished on the inside. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. So we've seen the scope of Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the purpose of Christian unity, and I want to look next, I want to jump outside of John 17 for a minute and look at the practice of Christian unity. How do we express this unity? Uh, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church church And it has everything to do with unity. It has everything to do with teaching these believers how to live out the gospel that they have received, how to live in light of the glorious truths that they have believed. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 8, he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do we live out this unity? Well, Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing motivated merely by yourself, only by yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Count others more significant than yourself. And that is a hard concept to wrap our brains around if we think about it for a bit. Count others more significant than yourself. What does that mean? It means if, if Grace Bay Area is a church of 100 people, it means there are 99 people here who are more significant than you. If your small group has ten people, there are nine people who are more significant than you. Count others more significant than yourself. In your church, in the body of Christ, consider other people more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do you live out this unity? Count others more significant. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look not only to your own interests, look to the interests of others. Of others, Look to the interests of the people around you. Look to the interests of the people in your church, in your body. And how do we do all those things? We look to Jesus, who considered others more significant than himself. We look to Jesus, who laid down his life, who emptied himself, who took on the form of a servant, and died a death on the cross so that all of us could be united to him and could be united to his family. How do we live out this unity? How do we consider others more significant than ourselves? We consider that Jesus considered us more significant to the point that he gave up his life to die on the cross for us. The practice of Christian unity and finally, real quick, I, I want to show you the culmination of Christian unity. The culmination of Christian unity. Turn back to John 17. Again, Christ prays this prayer, this amazing prayer, at the end of his time on earth. He's going to go to the cross in hours. And he prays for his glory and his people, he prays that the Father would restore to him his glory. And he prays that the Father would keep his people, preserve them, that he would empower them for their mission, and that he would unify them. And then we come to verse 24, and we see this, this crescendo, this, this climax of this prayer. And he prays this to his Father, for his people. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The culmination of this unity is coming on the day that Christ is praying for when all of his people, all over the world, from all different walks of life, from all different languages, all different eras, are united, are gathered to him, gathered to be where he is, to behold his glory, to gaze upon the glory of Christ, to see that the Father has answered his prayer. Christ lays down his glory to redeem these people, to save these people, to bring these people to himself. Verses 1 to 5, he lays down his glory, but he has completed his mission and he prays, Father, restore to me the glory that I surrendered to reach these people. And then he prays for those people. And in verse 24, he looks forward to the day when all of those people are gathered and are united around him to see that the Father has restored his glory to him. And all believers, everywhere, for all time, will be united to be joined with Christ, to be gathered with Christ, to see Christ in all of his glory. And I want to show you this from the last pages of Scripture, the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we get a glimpse into the future. We get a glimpse into the end when Christ's people are united and are gathered around him. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever." And ever. Amen. This is the culmination of our unity. This is the culmination of Christian unity when all believers from all languages and all cultures and all eras, all centuries, are gathered at the throne of God to behold Christ's glory, to see their prize, to fulfill everything that they have been called to, to worship Christ with their family. For all of eternity. But we're not there yet, right? We're not there. We're not in eternity yet. We live in a world that is anything but united. We are a part of a church that, at least on the outside, seems to be anything but united. So, on the ground level, how do we apply this? What do we do with this? Uh, I want this to be practical, so I just want to give you three very simple points of application to apply these truths. Uh, Number one, love your church. Love your church. Again, the, the unity that we're talking about here is cosmic, and it is a universal kind of unity that consists of all believers everywhere. But, Christian unity is most fully, most clearly expressed in the context of the local church. So, love your church. And when I say love your church, I mean love Grace Church of the Bay Area, if you're a member here. Express this unity by loving your church. Make this the year that you love your church more than you ever have before. Love your church. Uh, secondly, become more involved in your church. You will express your unity as you serve your church, as you serve your people as you serve your family in Christ. Love your church. Become involved in your church. Uh, And third, I would say this. Become friends with people in your church that you probably would have nothing to do with apart from Christ. Again, there's unity in all kinds of areas of life, right? I think back to to sports. Uh, Some of those teammates of mine, they have no concept of me being really close friends with people that I have nothing in common with, right? People from a totally different culture, people who are a very different age than I am. That is not really the kind of unity that we see in the world, but it is a unity that manifests the glory of the gospel and it demonstrates to the world that this unity is not like the unity of the world. This unity is not like the unity that we have with our blood relatives. It's not like the unity that we have with friends and family members and coworkers. Uh, become friends with people that you have nothing in common with apart from Christ. And as you do that, as we do that as a church, as a local church and as a global church, as we do these things, we demonstrate to the world the unity that we have that was purchased by Christ and we give the world reason to believe the message that we proclaim, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you that we can, we can call you Father. We can call you our Father. Lord, you are, you are a Father to a, an entire family. A family that has been united by Christ, united to Christ, and united to each other. We thank you, Lord, for for these truths. Help us now to live in light of this, to practice the unity that you have purchased. And Lord, may we stamp our message, stamp the gospel with a seal of authenticity and give the world reason to believe this message. Uh, We praise you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's